It is never enough for Trump. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and Jeremy Wallace at Houston Chronicle and HoustonChronicle.com is reporting for duty. Hello, sir. Uh, how are you doing? We have the Astros in the playoffs again. Yes. So. Who's taking me? Who's buying my ticket? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, you know, don't we get like a little break so we can just go ch- chill out at ballparks no although it would be a lot of fun but there's just so much to cover here that doesn't mean people aren't going to see on my twitter feed at some point that i'm at a playoff game it 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 could absolutely happen but for now we're doing the news where should we start there's so much uh going on and texas just right in the middle of everything there was breaking news in the middle of our last show, you remember I read from the letter uh, that uh, former President Trump sent to Greg Abbott and made public. I like how the uh, how you get the news from Trump now, which is you don't see it on Twitter because he's banned from that. So instead, he has this Save America pack and he sends out all these emails to reporters and activists and whoever else. And so right in the middle of our show last week, uh, as we were uh, recording the number one political podcast in the state, we had to readjust a little bit. But we can do that because we're pros. We know what we're doing. And there was a lot of reaction to it after we broke that news that here is President Trump saying that even though he won the state of Texas in the 2020 election, there should be a forensic audit of the state. Governor Abbott, of course, immediately agreed and said he would do that. Nope, sorry, that's not what happened at all. It's very interesting, Jeremy. We have Governor Abbott, who has the Trump endorsement, not doing what Trump is asking. And I don't know how that's going to work out for him. Um, In the last 24, 48 hours, we've seen President Trump uh, take a um, disappointed tone with Greg Abbott. He put out a statement saying that Abbott's not doing enough on this. What Trump asked for specifically is to have a forensic audit of the 2020 election in Texas placed on the special session agenda. Abbott's not doing that. But within hours of Trump demanding this audit of a state that he won, by about 600,000 votes, right? By five or six points. But remember, Trump has said that if there wasn't so much cheating going on, he would have won Texas by more points, by more votes, even though there's no evidence of that. Um, Abbott's Secretary of State's office, and there is no Secretary of State right now. There's nobody in that position. By the way, just a quick aside. Do you remember the Texas Secretary of State's job being so controversial before Greg Abbott? No, it's hard to remember who any of the Secretary of States were over the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah, right. Uh, When Rick Perry was the governor, uh, as the prime example, it was something that was sort of ceremonial. And the person always, uh, you know, was seen as having a great honor to have this bestowed on them that they're the Secretary of State of Texas. They don't just oversee elections, but they also kind of serve like a mini Secretary of State for Texas. Like go meet with officials in Mexico City and things like that. So it's always uh, to their benefit to also be bilingual. And this is also one of the uh, uh, positions that you often see uh, uh, women who are Latina put in that position, uh, like a few of them recently. Uh, And um, it's not ever been something where it was so such a lightning rod. Uh, Governor Abbott has now had two of his secretaries of state not confirmed by the Texas Senate. One of them was uh, David Whitley, uh, who oversaw that big voter purge that was very controversial. Uh, Secretary um, Hughes, the last one, she was not confirmed by the Senate. And the suspicion was it's because she said the 2020 election was safe, secure and smooth and everything was just fine at the same time that Republicans want to make the argument that we need more election security. So the Secretary of State's office, right after Trump asked for this audit, they announced that four counties would be audited instead, right? That Collin, Dallas, Harris and Tarrant counties would be audited. I was told by some Republican lawmakers, But there's nothing in the law that says that they can actually do this, a forensic audit of those four counties. And even in the new law that was passed, SB1, the elections law that was debated for eight months around here, while Democrats, you know, went to Washington to, uh, you know, try to get Congress to do something about voting rights and all of that. This was the big point of contention over almost the last year. Um, That bill does not allow them to do an audit like this. They did put in a random audit of four counties in that bill, but it says that there's there's some major provisions in there that wouldn't allow this. One is that the four counties would have to be urban and smaller counties. Yep. 
Two of them have to be over 300,000 population. Two of them have to be under. All four that were named by the Secretary of State are all over that, right? These are these are big counties. These are some of our giant counties in Texas. Um, and the other thing is that the audit would have to be done, quote, immediately after the election. Now, I asked one of the Republican lawmakers what that word means, because some people might say, okay, well, immediately could be in the immediate next year. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. So I asked them, I said, what, what about that? What about going back to 2020? And this person said, no, absolutely not. This attorney said, no reasonable person would say that a full year later would be immediately after the election. Okay. So here's Abbott trying to do a few things. He's trying to have this audit of four counties be good enough for President Trump. Trump says it's not. He wants a special session agenda item added to audit the state. That, that's his deal. Election security, an election audit, a forensic audit, sort of like what happened in Arizona. Uh, and Abbott also just did add an item to the special session agenda, which you saw this uh, yesterday. He said that he wants lawmakers to go back and increase penalties for illegal voting. And he immediately got, as you put it, Jeremy, on social media, he got a polite no thanks from Speaker Dade Phelan, who, uh, and this was, I thought, a rare moment of defiance. We haven't really seen uh, Phelan break with Abbott very much, maybe a couple of times. He wasn't, uh, I think the Speaker was not happy about uh, what the governor did on legislative pay and staff pay and the Article 10 veto and all of that. But usually these guys are pretty much arm in arm on everything. Phelan said no. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick welcomed the announcement from Abbott saying that, yes, we should go back and in, you know, increase those penalties and crack down on voter fraud. And Patrick said that the Texas House had snuck that language into SB1, the big elections bill, to try to decrease those penalties. But there was a conference committee. The House and Senate both looked at this and the attorney general's office weighed in on it as well, weighed in on it as well, which is what uh, Phelan pointed out. So all these moving parts, Jeremy. The governor was asked about this audit on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace. And, and of course, the uh, the Fox News Sunday program is a little bit different from Fox News Channel. I, I, I would make a little bit of a distinction. They're all sort of in the same uh, ecosystem, right? It's all Fox News. But Chris Wallace certainly has an independent streak, for sure. A serious newsman. He's, he's nobody's mouthpiece. I mean, he will have a Democrat on there and beat them up just like he'll have a Republican on there and beat them up. You know, he'll ask them tough questions. I don't think these were gotcha questions. He asked Abbott about this forensic audit of those four counties, and here's how that went. Isn't it just a terrible waste of taxpayer money to have an audit in a state that everybody says was, went fine and that uh, President Trump won by 600,000 votes? And aren't you contributing to this undermining confidence in our election process? I, I got to make several points about this. One, the, the context here, and that is there are audits of every aspect of government. We have a state auditor. There's a federal auditor uh, for the way that government operations work. Uh, uh, businesses that are public companies are subject to an annual audit. Why do we audit everything in this world, but people raise their hands in concern when we audit elections, which is fundamental to our democracy? Second point, uh, and that is that uh, th these audits uh, that the state of Texas uh, is doing, they actually began months ago because the Secretary of State of Texas has an obligation uh, to make sure that we do conduct audits in the state of Texas and they have to be done in okay. a way before any evidence of about it would be eliminated, which will be next September. And so those audits were already underway. The last point is this, and that is Donald Trump won the state of Texas. We know regardless of the outcome of these audits, Donald Trump will still have won the state of Texas. However, we do have every single year, including in the 2020 elections, allegations of ill Illegal voting in places I, in the state I, of Texas. Okay. We have a responsibility to ensure out, the integrity out, and confidence on, on in the Thursday, elections in the state he of Texas. Ordered, he asked for the audit, and suddenly there were new audits announced by the, uh, in four counties by the Secretary of State's office within hours of that on Thursday. The state, by the way, has not had a state auditor for years. Uh, Abbott has left that position vacant. He was saying in there that... You know, we have audits for everything at every level of government. And why are people questioning this? Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo is very much against this uh, at Commissioner's Court in Houston. Uh, she had them pass a resolution that she pushed to say, look, we're not for this. We don't want to cooperate with this. We think this is undermining our democracy. And she talked about that on MSNBC. Well, there, there are different pieces to it. First, it is seeing this for what it is. We heard about the cyber ninja audit in Arizona 
this similar thing is happening in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin now here. So recognizing that trend, recognizing in the state of Texas, it's not just this audit. The state just passed legislation that creates this veil of criminality around election. Basically, it sets traps so that innocent mistakes that routinely happen and routinely are dealt with by offices of, of elections administration, that those are sort of pegged as purposeful fraud and, and prosecuted as such. Um, and now we see this. So on the one hand, one hand, obviously, it's pandering. The folks who are doing this know that it helps with their base. But there's something more sinister there and more concerning, which is that this tears down trust in the election systems. And in doing that, it conveniently sets Republicans up to question the results of elections they don't like. So we have to call that for what it is. And we have to make sure that we don't create some sort of false equivalency. You know, on the one hand, um, there's this audit. On the other hand, counties oppose it. No, all of us have to recognize this is a cynical effort, a tragic one at that, and it tampers with democracy. There is something to that, the idea that if you keep asking questions and, uh, you know, calling into question results that are not uh, legitimately in question, that you don't have any evidence of any fraud, um, then people will, and we see it all over the place, people will question whether these uh, elections are legitimate. We have seen polling showing that majorities of Republicans don't believe that Joe Biden is the president. Right? That, that, it, that they, that, here's what happens, Jeremy. People will send each other memes in emails or put it on their Facebook pages about, I saw this just the other day, folks trying to be funny, and they say, silver alert, you know, there's a man missing in Washington, thinks he's president. You know, they were talking about Joe Biden. They're laughing at something that is nowhere close to true, um, and, and they, they're laughing at it because they think it's true that, that he's not president, and that any day now. Donald Trump will be reinstalled as the president of the United States. And in the meantime, you have Abbott not doing what Trump asked. And I think here's the danger for, for Abbott. Earlier this year, he sought out and he got the endorsement of Donald Trump. And it's my understanding that his team, his political team, Abbott's team, they wanted to sort of have a one and done thing where they would go to the border with Donald Trump and they would show their toughness about get, you know cracking down on illegal immigration and all of that. And as the campaign progresses through next year's primary and the general election in November of next year, that they would have the Trump seal of approval, but that they wouldn't have to do anything else. But that's not how Donald Trump works. He's going to come back and ask you for other things, right? And I think he might actually be in some danger of losing that Trump endorsement. And can you imagine if – and look, Trump is unpredictable. I'm not predicting that he's going to do that. But if he does, what kind of position does that put Abbott in? who has staked a lot of his political career now on the support of Donald Trump, right? They, they proudly have promoted that he's the Donald Trump candidate. He's got that seal of approval. If Trump was to pull that, and I'm not overestimating this, the most important issue to Trump is this, is his election and what happened with him in 2020, right? And so if Abbott's not doing what he wants, maybe Trump says, I'm not with Abbott anymore. And then the nightmare scenario for Abbott in the primary is suddenly Trump's with one of the other candidates in that primary, maybe Don Huffines, maybe Alan West. Yeah, and there's definitely a history of uh, you can never appease Trump enough to be on his side. Exhibit A, Vice President Mike Pence. You know, look how he turned on him. Exhibit B, you know, Steve Bannon, who helped get him elected to the White House and then became you know, an enemy of the state, essentially. Look at all of his defense secretaries and secretaries of state. You know, they were all great people until he turned on them. You mm -hmm. know, it's like it, it's a consistent thing with him. And so, like, for Abbott, like, if he's chasing, you know, an attempt to appease him at all costs, look at where Lindsey Graham is right now. It's like, you know, there, there's the senator from South Dakota right. remember, or South Carolina. Remember, he was absolutely, you know, an enemy of Trump. Then he was friends with Trump. They were golf buddies. And now Trump's turned on him again. You know, it's just like it's just this constant, you know, there's no way you can keep this man happy enough to support you. So, like, every time you put yourself up, you hurt yourself with maybe the moderate Republican base that – I thought Greg Abbott had pretty good control of two mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah. And, you know, there's a risk as he keeps kind of giving those folks up 
for the Trump wing of the Republican Party. Because, look, there's definitely two wings at this point. The more he appeases the Trump crowd, how much is he losing in the middle? And how much is that making him vulnerable, you know, it, you know come general election time to better O'Rourke or anybody else, quite mm-hmm. honestly? Yeah, and he's taking heat from the right, uh, as you say. I was uh, guest hosting the Mark Davis show uh, in Dallas-Fort Worth on Monday, and one of the interesting conversations I had was with uh, Jonathan Stickland, a Republican former state representative who is supporting Don Huffines for governor. And Stickland said that Abbott's losing support among Republicans for a variety of reasons. Well, I think you're right. I mean, there's there's a ton of people like myself who at one time uh, supported Greg Abbott and you know that was that was real easy to do. Uh, we're talking about a guy who was in office for who's been in office over 30 years. This is the first time he's ever had a Republican primary opponent. Um, so you know it's it's pretty easy to to not have a bunch of enemies when you don't have to run for reelection. And and Greg Abbott, I would say, is is a total career politician in in that regard. But you know I think the frustrations of Greg Abbott when he is at the top leadership position in the state. Um, over time, this thing has begun to crack for him because the guy's not a leader. And Scott, I think I think you've seen this. There are people from every side of the aisle, mm-hmm. uh, the most conservative to moderates to liberals, who do not give Greg Abbott high marks. And it's because the guy is not a leader. He has never cast a vision for where the state should go, what it should be. Um, many folks complain about lack of communication mm-hmm. down in the legislature. I know I certainly did uh, try and reach out um, at different points during the six years I served with him to try and have a conversation about different things, get the agenda, mm-hmm. and you don't get any of that. In fact, if you don't want to talk about re-election, um, there's really not much to talk about. And, and that's not just for me as a conservative. That goes for everyone. Stickland there on 660 AM, The Answer in Dallas-Fort Worth. And Jeremy, I have heard that from other Republicans as well. They're upset with Abbott. We, on the show previously, pointed out that Tucker Carlson on Fox News Channel had said, look, Abbott won't even come on our show because we're going to ask him tough questions about the border. And just this week, we saw that the guy that Stickland is supporting for governor, Don Huffines, was appearing on the Tucker Carlson show, basically to badmouth Abbott and say that he hasn't gotten control of the border. Uh, And I think we're going to see Alan West do the same thing. And so this Texas primary for governor is really taking on uh, a national flair, right? It's it's all over the place. Yeah. And and he actually makes a great point there about like how Abbott has kind of gone through a political career without a lot of political challenges from either the right or even the center. Uh, And so like he's ended up kind of, I almost want to say not battle tested, not in the way that you see John Cornyn and Ted Cruz had to go through, you know, how do you work with, you know, the different elements of the party? How do you, you know, go after Democrats? How do you work with the media? You know, in the relationship with the media, if you look at how like, you know, Cornyn or Ted Cruz work with the media, they work really well with us. You know, they're in constant communication. They fight with us. Don't get me wrong. But like they're in pretty much regular communication. They know me pretty well and things like that. But Greg Abbott, there's a guy in politics that you rarely see communicate with the media one on one. In fact, almost never. You know, especially compared to other governors. You know, I've had more one-on-one conversations with Rick Perry mm-hmm. since Greg Abbott's been governor than with Governor of course. Abbott. Right. You know, it's like, which is really strange, right? And the same thing with like almost any other place. So he's kind of isolated himself and didn't need to talk to the media, didn't need to kind of work with, you know, both parts of the Republican Party. And I think now he's being kind of pushed to try to find, like, how do you do all this stuff? And he's going to have to do it on the fly with Alan West and Don Huffines barking at him one corner, with mm-hmm. Better work in the middle out there, with Donald Trump kind of hovering over the whole thing <laughs> and making him kind of make decisions. And again, he just hasn't had to do this before in his career, like most, you know, t- stop, you know top state elected officials have had to do. Yeah. And so... Like it'll be interesting. Does can he handle this? And it's like, and I think it's a legitimate question because he's mm-hmm. never had to before, and so he it's is, kind of a first time run. That is very well described. He is not politically nimble like some, like Governor Perry, uh, who could just move on the fly. I mean, the kind of challenges that Perry had to deal with. A four way race in two thousand six yep. for governor, where he had uh, a Democrat, two independents, um, and he came in with thirty nine percent on you know on election night in November. But all you need is a plurality. 
That's all it took. And, you know, he kind of got out ahead of this whole uh, border security issue. Uh, He was one of the first to embrace the Tea Party movement. Perry was, I think, the first, I would consider him the first major Republican figure in the country to to speak to a big Tea Party rally. It was right here in Austin. And at the time, uh, the establishment, if you will, of the Republican Party, which is interesting to say that he wasn't somehow the establishment because he was the governor. Of course. Uh, But uh, (laughs) Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison, who was challenging him, was seen more as an establishment Republican. She and her team thought that he was committing political suicide to do that. Now, here's Abbott trying to do something similar. But he's taking heat from all sides. Since we're talking about elections here and you know this demand from President Trump to get even tougher on that 2020 election in Texas, which he won, um, we also have redistricting on the table. It, it, it's in uh, high gear now, right? And I'm not going to spend the entire show talking about it because you could, but even Governor Abbott has now admitted what we've been reporting for weeks here, which is you may need an entire another special session to get through with it. So we'll cover it as the weeks unfold here on the show. Uh, but you now have the congressional maps out. I think those are going to be uh, approved, at least on the Texas Senate side, pretty quickly here. Uh, you have the Texas Senate map, and now you have the Texas House map out as well. There's also the uh, State Board of Education. But it was interesting to look at the Texas House map. And of course, here in Austin, it's like a mushroom cloud. When, you, when, the, when the Texas House map comes out, this is the beginning of the blood sport. Of figuring out how the chessboard will be arranged for the next decade. Um, and if people think about redistricting as setting the rules of the game for how the elections and campaigns will go, it's probably the right way to think about it. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, there will be court challenges, of course. It's always every time they go through one of these fights, Jeremy, it's a full employment act for the attorneys who do redistricting law for the next decade they'll be in they'll be in court about this and may have some federal intervention although it's worth pointing out this is the first redistricting cycle in which we don't have some major protections for minorities under the voting rights act Uh, in the last redistricting in 2011 you still had a preclearance requirement basically that meant that whatever election law changes uh, were put into effect in certain states and primarily in the South, including Texas, uh, with histories of racial discrimination, they would have to go through this process with the federal government, with the Department of Justice, to try to do a negotiation, make sure that they weren't racially discriminating, right, in the way that these maps are drawn, uh, you know, potentially uh, decreasing uh, the strength, the voting strength of, of minorities. Um, but there's also on the back end, and these are this is because of Supreme Court decisions uh, over the last decade. Also, on the back end, there are not as many opportunities to sue over, for example, partisan uh, redistricting. The, the federal courts have now said, Supreme Court said, federal courts have no role in determining whether the map is too partisan. Right? They can still have challenges based on racial discrimination. Uh, and so, when you look at the fact that ninety-five percent of the growth in Texas over the last decade has been fueled by racial and ethnic minorities, black people, brown people, but their voting strength at the Texas Capitol is proposed to be cut under what was put out by the Republican leadership this week. It's significant. And Jeremy, I don't know that the Democrats can do a whole lot about that. Yeah, exactly. You know, drawing a mean map in of itself is not (laughs) a legitimate you know, legal strategy of fighting these maps. And there's a lot of mean pieces of these squiggles on the line, on the map, yes. right? Let me get into a couple of them that have really kind of struck me. Yeah, so so we're not going to go through the entire map because, again, this would be a very boring show if we did yes. that. I'm going to call out our listener, Paul Betancourt, who years ago on the radio uh, had done a show where he was describing the lines that were proposed in, in Harris County. And he's trying to be informative, but I thought it was a little dry. Yeah. So, so it's just my, just my it's, analysis it's of that. It's easy Broad, to get that way. It's a broadcast analysis of yeah, it. So it's, instead, it's you, you won't see it, me write a lot of stories about redistricting for that very reason because they're just kind of hard to explain to people. You know, who yeah. wants to write about lines on a piece of paper? Uh, but in this case, the one thing is clear: they are like taking it to. Sheila Jackson Lee. Well, yeah. So, so you had a story zeroing in on what was happening in Houston. Talk yeah. about that. Yeah. The, 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 again, there's the meanness in, t- in these lines and that, you know, not only did they take all of downtown Houston out of Sheila Jackson Lee's district, but then they took the historic third ward 
you know, the African-American community, they took it out of her district. Mm -hmm. They took Texas Southern University, a historically black college, out of her district. You know, then they took her house out of her district. So she would actually be in Al Green's district, the neighboring, you know, congressman. So she can't even vote for herself. Uh, So it's clear to me that they kind of aimed at her district and decided to kind of cause a lot of havoc with her district. You know, State Senator Joan Huffman said she had no conversation with the congresswoman or her staff and had made it sound like she was waiting to hear from them and would be open to amendments if other state senators want to start changing those lines. Like you said, we have a long way to go. These mm-hmm. lines could change, you know, quite a bit before we get there. But of of all the big highlights of the congressional map, the one thing people should watch is just kind of how not only does that affect Sheila Jackson Lee, that ended up moving 200,000 primarily African-American voters out of their congressional districts into mm-hmm. other districts. Some of it was sent into, you know, Sylvia Garcia's district. Some of mm-hmm. it was to Al Green's district. Some of it into Lizzie Fletcher's district. So you can see things getting spread all over the place. But that's 200,000 people who are having to move members of Congress and maybe probably didn't have to, given the size of those districts. They didn't mm-hmm. grow so much that they had to do such radical surgery. And in fact, that's what Sheila Jackson Lee called it. Uh, in opposing it, saying this was an unnecessary surgery that smacks of racial discrimination. Yeah, and in Houston, I believe it was uh, more than one million people being moved from one congressional district to another, right through the throughout the region. Uh, and this is something that is allowed, as I said on the front end. Uh, you may have uh, some legal challenges, and we'll see how those play out. But they can at least propose this for now. This will be worked uh, through the legislative process, uh, but understand this dear listener it's a republican proposal there's not a democratic proposal they can Correct. try to they can try to make some uh changes they can try to get this thing amended but this is really going to be um a debate among the republicans about how they want to do this uh and whether republicans take it seriously uh these accusations of racial discrimination i saw during the texas senate hearing on this uh when the question was asked about moving some of these minority voters in different ways uh the chair of the senate redistricting committee joan huffman said well nobody came to her with any of these concerns as they were working on these maps well they're going to come to her now and they are starting to come to her in these hearings and so we'll see how they work that out i would say that um just as a as a broad takeaway on the texas house map And this is similar on the congressional map. Um, This is how different we are from a place like California, for example, where Joe Biden wins the presidency by almost 30 points in, 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 in California. In Texas, we have become so much more competitive that Republicans can't really try to increase the number of lawmakers they're sending to Washington or Austin. They can't really do that. What they can do is spread out uh, minority voting strength, um, you know, among all these different districts, to try to keep roughly the same number of Republican representatives in places, you know, at the Capitol in Austin, the Capitol in Washington, um, and to be able to do that, they're doing all this funny math. Well, in the uh, Texas House seats, they have, because of the Constitution in Texas, our state Constitution. There's a rule that says they have to keep the districts as whole as possible when it comes to the counties, that the counties have to be kept whole as possible. Um, But for Congress and for the state Senate, there's no rule like that. And so that's why you see these dramatic changes in where people are uh, going to be, uh, you know, putting their votes going forward if these maps are enacted and what kind of uh, candidates they can vote for. So we will continue to cover the uh, redistricting fight as it unfolds. That Fox News Sunday interview with Chris Wallace and Greg Abbott, let me go back to that because it was pretty remarkable. I wouldn't say this was Abbott's best performance ever, Jeremy. Um, He was also asked by Chris Wallace about the new Texas abortion law, which continues to be right at the top of the national news. The outrage about this is not going away. People are very passionate about this, very angry. There was a hearing about it on Capitol Hill this week that we'll get into as well. But Abbott was asked about the fact that the bill, this um, this ban on abortion at six weeks in Texas, that's enforced by civil litigation, 
people suing doctors and anyone who, quote, aids and abets a, a woman who is seeking an abortion. There's also a federal hearing happening on that, uh, a, a court hearing happening in Austin just this morning uh, as we're recording the show. So we'll track the you know what happens with that at quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com. Chris Wallace was asking Abbott about the fact that there's no exception for rape and incest in this uh, at all and wanted to know whether or not he would sign a bill to put an exception in there. And that didn't go real great for the governor either. A state representative, Republican state representative, says that he's going to offer a new measure that would restore the exception to the Texas abortion law for victims of rape and incest. If that came to your desk, will you sign it or not? Well, we got to go back, Chris, to what the reason was why the law was passed in the first place. Uh, and the goal uh, is to uh, protect the lives of every child with a heartbeat. Uh, and so in, we're, we're working to achieve that goal. Chris, i, I got to point this out, Chris. Including the child of a rape. This, this goal is consistent uh, with what the United States Supreme Court has written, uh, and that is states uh, have the ability to make sure that we protect the health and safety of both the mother and the child, and that's what we are seeking to do here. And I have to add this, and that is Texas just provided more than $100 million in funding for pregnancy centers across the state of Texas to help those uh, who uh, want to make sure that so, they will so just, be able to just carry to lock a child. This but, down, are you saying, sir, I don't mean to interrupt, but are you saying that you will not sign uh, an exception for rape and incest? Well, at first, I got to tell you, Chris, you're, you're making a hypothetical that it's not going to happen because that bill is not going to reach my desk. It may not reach his desk, Jeremy, because the governor has not placed that issue on the special session agenda. People are really angry about this. I have uh, started to hear over the last couple of days that even some of the top elected supporters of this bill have privately started to ask this question. Did we go too far with this? There has been a long-standing, steady drum beat in Texas of more and more and more anti-abortion slash pro-life legislation. And I say pro-life or anti-abortion because depending on who you're talking to, that yeah. whichever group is going to want you to that say matters. one or the other, right? So I'll be respectful to all the views here. Uh, but this has been going on for north of a decade uh, in Texas and longer than that, but it's really ramped up, I think, in the last decade of passing more and more restrictive abortion laws. Think about back in 2013 when then-Senator Wendy Davis was filibustering a massive bill on abortion. It did a lot of different things, uh, but in, in some ways that bill was sort of like the elections bill this time around in that it did so many things. It, it's hard to explain everything that it did in short time, um, but we were at that time talking about increasing the um, regulations on abortion clinics, literally down to micromanaging how wide the hallways had to be in an abortion clinic, uh, such that uh, you know a hospital bed would be able to move through the hallway, uh, that it would be uh, on the same par with uh, an ambulatory surgical center. Uh, and, and as that was being debated, the lieutenant governor at the time tweeted out an image of how many abortion clinics were in Texas a map of the state with dots all over it where there are abortion clinics and said, after this passes, here's how many there will be. And it was, you know, down to five or whatever it would be. So these were things that were a little more around the margins of what happens with abortion. In this case, it effectively makes abortion illegal. It has a different um, enforcement mechanism, but at six weeks, as we know, most women have no idea that they're pregnant, right? At, at that point that most women who know that they're pregnant at six weeks would be women who are absolutely dedicated to having it go to term, right? Because this is somebody like, say, say a woman who, and like she and her husband are working on getting pregnant. And so we're always testing, right? And trying to figure out, did it work? Did it take, right? That kind of thing. And I don't want to make light of that, but, but it's usually women who desperately want the baby who would even know yeah. that they are pregnant at six weeks. Most women don't have any idea about that. The U.S. Senate uh, Judiciary Committee this week uh, looked into this bill, and they were uh, asking a question about the procedure that was used at the United States Supreme Court to let this law take effect. Now, we talked about this previously. We covered the story uh, as the abortion law was making its way through the legislative process earlier this year, uh, and folks around the country didn't really notice it. And of course, this was a state issue at the time, uh, but the moment that the Supreme Court let it take effect on September 1st, people were outraged. They couldn't believe this. 
and I've said this before, I'll say it again. I think folks kind of have it baked into their thinking about all this, that anything that would just abandon, anything that would get rid of abortion outright is unconstitutional on its face. And so people couldn't imagine that the Supreme Court would let it take effect when plaintiffs were trying to get temporary relief on this. Well, the Supreme Court did that. And so in this hearing on Capitol Hill, the chairman uh, of the committee, Dick Durbin, is a Democrat from Illinois, uh, he and other Democrats wanted to focus in on this idea that the Supreme Court is using its uh, sort of temporary orders where they don't really say a lot about the order, where the justices don't, re don't really weigh in uh, generally, and they don't have a full hearing before the Supreme Court, they don't have oral arguments made in front of the court or any of that, that these temporary orders are having greater impact uh, for a lot of people. Uh, let me explain it this way. There is a Supreme Court challenge to the Mississippi abortion ban, which is, is that 15 weeks? Um, and and, and in, in the Mississippi case, it's thought that it's a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade. And in that case, the court's going to hear full arguments later this year and then render some sort of a decision. In this case in Texas, that didn't happen. It was just a sort of middle of the night quick, uh, like a memo from the Supreme Court that says that this law in, in, uh, in Texas can go forward and abortions in Texas are effectively outlawed while we still wait to them, for them to even hear that case in Mississippi. So this has people frustrated. Uh, Chairman Durbin asked Austin Democratic State Representative Donna Howard about how many people could be caught up as defendants in these lawsuits that are now authorized under SB 8. As we have pointed out, um, it's civil litigation. That's the way this is being enforced. So if a woman goes to have an abortion, she can't be sued. However, the doctor who uh, performs the abortion can be sued and say an Uber driver who takes her to the clinic can be sued. Anybody who uh, Googles where the abortion clinic is and shows the phone to the woman to say, here's the directions how to get there, they could be sued. People who work at the clinic, uh, you know, the woman who uh, is there, the receptionist at the front desk, who says that's the room to go to, could yep. be sued. Uh, so here's Durbin asking Howard about that. Was this discussed in the Texas House of Representatives as to the, the number of people who would be inadvertently swallowed up in this law? It was absolutely discussed and debated. Uh, but to no avail, could we get any change made to that? And we have heard of multiple instances now of, for instance, uh, Uber or Lyft drivers not being willing to take someone to uh, a Planned Parenthood clinic. Uh, this is something that has a, an extreme amount of confusion. Uh, people do not know if they're going to be held liable for even counseling. Uh, those that are doing sexual assault counseling in particular are upholding what they know is appropriate to do in counseling those that come to them, the survivors, but are have absolutely concerned now about what that's going to mean for liability for them. Now, Republicans like Senator Ted Cruz, the very junior senator from Texas, say that the U.S. Supreme Court can absolutely do what it did here. He and others, including John Cornyn, our senior senator, argued that, hey, the Supreme Court, when they make these temporary decisions, Jeremy, that's just part of running a court, that, that this happens. Although it was pointed out in the hearing that for these kinds of decisions and the way they've been handled, it's really ramped up over the last few years, and it really ramped up during the Trump administration. Here's Senator Cruz saying that, look, Democrats are just radical in their views on abortion, and really all they're trying to do is beat up on Texas. What this is really about is trying to demonize Texas and trying to demagogue on the question of life. Now, when it comes to demonizing Texas, I, I suppose I can understand the, the incentive of, of Senate Democrats to do so. Chairman Durbin is from Illinois. I just looked up the statistics in the year 2020 of what states people are moving out of. The number one state is New Jersey. The number two state is New York. The number three state is Illinois. Illinois did better. A year ago, it was the number two state for people fleeing. Last year, it was number three. So Illinois is doing better. Where do the people from Illinois go? Well, clearly, they don't go to the hell holes like Texas or Florida. Well, no, actually, that's exactly where they go. They go to Texas and Florida. Why? Because we actually have jobs there. We have low taxes, and we protect people's rights. 
none of those uh, examples had to do with any of the uh, culture war policies that people are now questioning as far as whether business is coming to Texas, Jeremy. And we've now seen where places like Chicago are taking out newspaper ads to try to get people to move from Texas to Illinois. They're trying to reverse the flow <laughs> because of some of this stuff. And we're starting to get the sense that it's just anecdotal that in some cases it may be working. Yeah. And you have to understand, like, you know, the the territory the Republicans have been pushed into, I'll say pushed into it uh, on this abortion legislation is really interesting. Like you said, it's like the whole rape and incest piece that you heard, uh, you know, Fox News kind of going after Governor Abbott on is such a big deal. I think I don't think people understand the gravity of this. This isn't just that, you know, 77 percent of Texans. You know, in this poll that came out by Quinnipiac earlier this week, mm -hmm. showed that seventy-seven percent support an exception for rape and incest. You know, right. that's all Texans. Among Republicans, sixty-six percent, and right. among and if you just ask women, you're at almost eighty percent of all women in Texas agree there should be an exception. So when Governor Abbott is defending this, that's a twenty percent of the women of Texas that he's appealing to and there's a math at some point you have to ask yourself of like why are they doing this why are they going so far to the right just say yeah we should have put an exception in there mm -hmm. and move on but like they, they can't do that because of these primary challengers like I, I i wonder if governor abbott would have a different answer for that if he weren't facing a a primary challenge in which he's worried about the right to life crowd being so mm -hmm. strong in the Republican Party that somehow that could cost him an election. And, and you know, maybe that's worth worrying about. But mm -hmm. again, the force of the tree is 80% of the women of Texas don't agree with you. I would take that more seriously if I yeah. were the Republicans, especially in, you know, this changing urbanizing state, you know, where People who live in the cities are sitting here hearing this and going, what? What's the number just of women in the cities and in the suburbs? It's like, is that 90% saying, what the heck is this? Because <laughs> mm -hmm. I kind of get the feeling it just might be. Yeah, 80% uh, opposition is something. You don't see a whole lot, uh, you know, you don't see a lot of numbers like that. The deal with the, uh, the Tea Party types, the right to life folks, is they want 100%. And so yeah. you can, you know, 100% agreement and you can not ever make those folks happy if you are in a leadership position. How much money was spent in Texas over the last decade to 15 years by Republicans to, in their primaries, try to hold those folks at bay? All these Republican incumbents who for years fought with the groups like Empower Texans, Texas Right to Life and the rest who demand 100% agreement on policies like this. Um, and guess what? Now Abbott has marched the legislature toward 100% agreement with those folks and all that stuff, and they still don't like them. They're promoting people like Don Huffines and Alan West as challengers to Abbott. Yep. You're never going to make these people happy. And to your point, on the other side, you're pissing off every woman in Texas while you're doing it. The kind of women, especially, and I say the kind of women, like the kind of suburban women, the kind of women who would vote for Republican otherwise, right? Um, a lot of them who helped deliver the election for down-ballot Republicans last year in Texas who would be totally turned off by this. One other thing that may be a huge issue for Governor Abbott and his re-election is, you remember this, wasn't there a, um, a big storm earlier this year? Was it a hurricane? It wasn't a hurricane. Remember down on the coast, uh, Todd Hunter, who's the redistricting chairman, by the way, he's uh, from Corpus Christi, he had called it the snow cane. And yeah. there were uh, other names for it, like the Snowpocalypse, Winter Storm Yuri. Yep. This deal that put Texas on ice uh, from from Galveston to the Panhandle. Amazing. Historic. It And with everything else that's happened this year, Jeremy, it's, all, it's so in the rear view for me. I, there are a lot of people who still have damage from this. Luckily, I didn't. I know a lot of people uh, who, who did uh, and have had to do, you know, serious 
uh, rehab of their homes after uh, what happened in that I storm. I would be one of those. Pipes busting, <laughs> yep. all sorts of problems. I had nine pipes burst. It, it's clo- it has to be close to the Texas record for wow. pipes burst in one storm, yeah. right? <laughs> so here's a question. After the electricity grid nearly completely failed during that uh, storm, uh, is the grid and our power generators uh, all over the state ready for the next one? Have they winterized as was uh, required, supposedly? under some legislation passed by the Texas legislature this year? The short answer is no. There was a hearing in the Texas Senate on it this week, and what you're going to hear right here is Senator John Whitmire, a Democrat from Houston. He's the dean of the Senate, longest-serving senator. He was asking the Public Utility Commission chairman, Peter Lake, about whether any companies are taking any steps to harden their systems against extreme weather, and if so, can that be proven right now? Could you show us some weatherization being taking place today if we were to get up and go on a field trip? Who's weatherizing as we talk today? Because that's what the constituents I represent want to know. The deadline is December 1st, so we're not inspecting anybody yet. I want the weatherization to be demonstrated as we sit here today, if that's possible. With so many of these issues, Jeremy, it seems like uh, leadership has taken the position that if if they don't do much uh, to address the deal, the, the gamble here is that a storm like that is not going to happen again before next November, right? They're, they're going to have to face the voters again, but not this year. Can you imagine what Governor Abbott's election prospects would be, his re-election prospects would be, if the election was this year, after yeah. that storm? And with this abortion thing going on and everything happened, it's almost like we'll we'll kick the can down the road and just hope that nothing like that happens again, even though we know, based on what has happened with hurricanes, what has now happened with this winter storm and other things that, and, you know, it gets controversial, that we are having more and uh, more extreme weather events because of what's happening with the climate on the planet. And you have to think that in a state that prides itself on energy, the fact that it was completely embarrassing for us to not be able to turn the lights on, that we had hundreds of people die during the storm. And when and I talked to some folks outside of Texas this week, they were asking this question, what have you all done on your electricity grid? And I said, well, they made some, what I would say, some small substantive changes. But when it comes to the question of whether the fundamentals of the electricity market are any different in Texas now, the answer is no. Yeah, it's like it's hard to kind of figure out what has changed that's going to prevent this from happening again. You know, it's like it just—it's one of those. And again, I think they might be miscalculated. I don't think people are going to forget that if you were in the dark without heat for a week or two, which mm-hmm. a lot of our fellow Texans were. It's like that's not going to be hard for people to say. Look, like I. If I were the Democrats, <laughs> it would be my bumper sticker to say, "We'll keep the lights on." That's it. Right. You don't have to say anything else. Just remind people that, like, if we're in there, we're going to try to do better to make sure the lights are staying on. If I were Republicans, I'd be doing the same thing. I'd be working on that, you know, day and night to make it appear that every day I'm concerned that, you know, we talk about these folks all the time. But, you know, to have somebody die in their truck looking for an oxygen tank uh, because the power went out, a veteran, it's like it's like. How can we forget those people? You know, it's like, how is anybody going to forget that? Uh, I don't know. I think this has a lot more legs than I think a lot of the people in politics understand, both Democrat and Republican. And mm-hmm. if they're not, like, attuned to that, I'm kind of stunned because I don't think we're ever going to forget what happened in February. Right. And make note, dear listener, I, I sometimes get, uh, you know, hateful tweets or different notes from people that somehow, you know, I'm, I'm uh, too critical of the little governor, Dan Patrick, he gets this right. The reason that I'm I'm giving him credit, he gets this right. The reason there's a hearing happening on this in the Texas Senate is because he wants them to do that. And Patrick, uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has been pushing this issue all through the regular session after the storm. He continues to push it now and has pushed back on the governor when the governor will not add any special session items having to deal with electricity. They're talking about this and getting an update in the Senate because Patrick oversees the Senate and he wants the senators to keep talking about it. Patrick put an op-ed in the Dallas Morning News fairly recently, I think it was about a month ago, where he was talking about the idea that we need more electricity in Texas, period. We need more electricity generation. And as you pointed out on the show previously, it's interesting that Patrick 
who doesn't have a real challenge. I don't even think, think he has an announced challenger for lieutenant governor on the on the on the GOP side. We're going to get to his Democratic one of his Democratic challengers. Um, but Patrick is thinking more about general election politics than Abbott is right when it comes to electricity. Patrick's been pushing this and saying that we have to do more on this period. And if we don't, we're making a big mistake. Patrick also uh, blasted the Public Utility Commission just this week because they went ahead, and I won't get into the weeds of it, but they went ahead and signed off on an agreement to spend $2.5 billion for securitization of companies uh, that maybe suffered losses during Winter Storm Uri. But Patrick wanted them to take into consideration that there are companies that made money. And he was basically trying to say, look, none of that money should go to any company that profited during the storm. So he's really taking this more populist approach where, Jeremy, um, you have Governor Abbott not doing anything about it, not wanting to say anything about it. He doesn't want to revisit this at all. I think you're right. He probably thinks this is a big liability and would just kind of like to sweep it under the rug. All right. I mentioned that Patrick has another challenger for lieutenant governor. This is someone who is not unknown to people in Austin. But I think if you did a poll, Jeremy, and you ask people, you know, who is Matthew Dowd? Almost nobody would know in, yeah. across Texas and across America because he's a political operative. Most of the political operatives that I know, and yes, he's one that is on television. He's a, a talking head. He has been on ABC, CNN, I think probably MSNBC as well. He's been on national television. But the thing about talking heads is, and you have to have some self-awareness. I mean, I know that if people saw me on television, I would probably just be another one of the white guy talking heads on TV. I wouldn't I wouldn't get it in my head that I can run for statewide office in Texas, right? I'm on TV plenty. I'm not trying to do this. Anyway, Matthew Dowd, Matthew Dowd, a lot of people might mistake him for one of the Lincoln Project guys like uh, like Steve Schmidt or Rick Wilson. What do they all have in common? White guys, bald guys, and uh, uh, former Republicans who are talking on TV all the time. Aren't they kind of all the same person? So Matthew Dowd, <laughs> he's one of the country over party people. Matthew Dowd is running as a Democrat for Lieutenant Governor of Texas. And here's part of his announcement from earlier this week. For the nearly 40 years I have lived here in Texas, I've raised three sons and a daughter and buried a son and daughter far too young in Texas soil. For their sake and for all Texans, I'm angry. The GOP politicians have failed us, especially the cruel and craven Lieutenant Governor. Dan Patrick has been lying and deceiving, fracturing the bonds we share and endangering all our lives. He does not believe in the common good. He seeks only to represent himself and the 5% of the state that goes along with all this. He puts his me over our we. He puts his me over our we. Now, one of the things that Dowd gets right in that is that Patrick is most of the time when he's not thinking general election politics, like we were just talking about with the electricity stuff, when he's not doing that, most of the time Patrick is focused like a laser on GOP primary politics. But there's a reason for that, because if you're playing golf, you have to, I'm, I'm making a, an analogy here. If you're playing golf, you have to, uh, hit the ball to where the hole is. And in Texas, I mean, it's a pretty basic. In Texas, the election of consequence is the Republican primary, right? So you hit the ball to the far right, way over there. And usually the general election, at least in modern times, in this generation, the November election has basically been a formality with maybe the exception of 2018, when Democrats were so close to winning a statewide office, but it still didn't happen, right? They still couldn't hit the hole in one. I don't even know what their what their score was. I like that commercial where um, lately there was uh, there's some commercial for something. You know, you one one problem with a commercial that's clever, but you can't remember what it's for, is it's a bad commercial, right? Yeah. I can remember the commercial, but I don't know what it's for. There's this uh, commercial where the guys are playing golf, and he says, "Well, who's counting here?" It's like, well, that's what golf is all about. Is is counting, right? You're trying to you know figure out what the score is. Um, with Dowd, number one, I think nobody knows who he is outside of Austin. Uh, he's one of those guys, and I'm, I'm saying this, a, a lot of my friends will not like that I'm saying this. He's one of those guys 
that people in Austin sort of uh, fawn all over because he's been around here for a long time. He uh, helped run campaigns for Governor Ann Richards decades ago. He switched from being a Democrat, and these these folks behind the scene will say he was always a Democrat, but I don't know how you get away with saying that. When he uh, ran campaigns for Governor Richards as a Democrat, then he worked for uh, Bob Bullock, who's also a Democrat, Lieutenant Governor, then went to work for George W. Bush uh, as Bush was ascending to the White House. Um, one of my very good Democratic friends said this, you can switch parties, and this would not be partisan, you can switch parties once in politics. That, that, let's say you're a, a, a veteran Democrat and you switch to Republican because you say the Democrats have gotten way too liberal and now I'm aligned with the Republican Party because they represent conservative values and I'm a conservative. You could get away with doing that once. Then you go try to go back to the Democratic Party and I don't know how that's going to fly. You can't do it. It, it. It's a very difficult needle to thread. You would have to say that Democrats were wrong and then the, went to the Republicans and they were wrong and now I've got to go back over to the to the other side. That's a hard trick to try to pull off. And then if you're, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and again, to do that when you have probably zero name identification in Houston or San Antonio, I'm just saying it's yep. probably close to zero. <laughs> it's like, he's got a long way to go to tell us who he is. And then immediately he'll have to explain why he flipped parties a second yes. time. <laughs> it's just, he would have Matthew Dowd would have to explain if he wants to win a Democratic primary. And of course, we know there's already a Democrat, at least one Democrat running uh, already for lieutenant governor. That's Mike Collier, who, interesting, is also a former Republican, uh, voted for Republicans in the past as an oil and gas guy. But he ran for uh, what he ran for comptroller first. Then he ran for lieutenant governor. Now he's running for lieutenant governor again. So maybe now we'll have a spirited primary for lieutenant governor in Texas on the Democratic side, which will be interesting. I'll be, uh, you know, I'll be happy to cover it and see how it unfolds. Um, but if, if anybody figures out who Matthew Dowd is, he would have to explain to Democrats that he helped run campaigns specifically for George W. Bush, where the arguments were this. Um one of the arguments was that if you vote for a Democrat for president, terrorists are going to kill you and your family. That was in 2004 yep. when, uh, when when Dowd was running the campaign for Bush. He would also have to explain to Democrats that he helped engineer a campaign in which national Republicans promised that they would, again, this was in 2004, that they would pass a constitutional ban on gay marriage nationally, Right. Now, Dowd has tried to do a lot of um, uh, apologies for the way he used to run politics, but I do think there's something to be said about his role in the nastiness of the politics that we have today. And there's been a lot written about this, actually. If you look at presidential elections going up to 2000, the broad theme was the way campaigns were run is that you have people on the right who are always going to vote for Republicans and people on the left who will always vote for Democrats. And then there's a big middle and that middle can be persuaded to vote one way or the other, right? That's the way they ran campaigns until about 20 years ago. And then you had the campaign of 2000 where it came down to the wire. You, you were, you were there for it, right? We all saw this unfold where it was Bush versus Gore came down to Florida, U S Supreme court made its decision. And it helped to lead to a lot of the divisiveness that we have in our, our country today. There were a lot of people who could never accept that George Bush was really the president, right? Because of the way it played out, right? Yeah. I'm not saying he wasn't really president. I, I understand how that all, how that all worked, um, but very divisive. So when they got to 2004 and Matthew Dowd was right in the middle of this, he and the Bush team decided that instead of doing persuasion elections, where you try to convince the middle that you're right, in 2004, they decided that all they were going to do was turnout elections. If we can get more of our people to turn out than the other side, then we will win. And that's why it turned into more of the scare tactic sort of stuff, like terrorists are going to kill you. And uh, for the evangelicals, it's a, we're going to ban gay marriage and all this sort of stuff. There was no reaching out to the other side in any of that that you would have seen in previous campaigns. And if you go back and you look at the uh, demographic breakdowns for how people voted, over the last 20 years in presidential elections based off of that kind of campaigning. And you said to them, if I gave you all the numbers, Jeremy, and I, I, I broke it down by 
women, by men, by college-educated and not college-educated, all the different racial and ethnic minority groups and all of that. And I gave you all the numbers for all of those elections for the last 20 years, and I asked you, which is the election that was won by a former game show host? You would not be able to tell me because they all look the same. <laughs> My point is this. They do. They, they all look the same. So the point is this, that you have a guy like Dowd who helped to set the stage for the kind of politics we have today that gave us Trump that gave us a former radio talk show host like Dan Patrick. He basically cultivated the land for Republicans to be in the spot they're at. And now he wants Democrats to elect him as a nominee to take on Dan Patrick. Yeah. In a nutshell, yes. And, and again, just a reminder, who's, who is this? <laughs> who is Matthew Dowd again? It's exactly. like, I'm going to have to explain that so much in stories to people. And again, we have a long way to the primary. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not convinced this is just Collier and Dowd anyhow. I think right. there's going to be still a lot more other people who say, you know, I can make the contrast with Dan Patrick better yes. than these two guys. I think that that's probably true. And I, I was talking to some uh, insiders the other day who were saying that the fact that you now have, this is the way they put it, you have two white guys running for lieutenant governor. It probably will mean that you will have a minority candidate get in, a woman candidate get in. I mean, this is far from a settled deal if people think that the field of these – and this the other thing is for all of these announcements we're seeing for different races all over the place, whether it's for statewide office or for you know state senate, state representative, some people who are thinking they're going to run for Congress, these maps are not even settled out yet, right? There's so much uncertainty before we even get to the actual primary voting next year. Jeremy. We hit the one hour mark. I'm done. Yes. That's enough. I, and yep. believe me, I probably said enough about Matthew Dowd. <laughs> <laughs> We're covered for if, the next few shows if he if says he gets, anything. <laughs> if he gets any traction, I'll have more to say. If you enjoy the show, you know you do, whether you're mad or not, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Give us the best rating that you can. We would appreciate it. Subscribe to quorumreport.com and HoustonChronicle.com to keep up with all the latest one breaking thing, Jeremy. Uh, that hearing on the Texas abortion law in Austin just wrapped up. Taylor Goldenstein at the Houston Chronicle says that the judge uh, is taking it under advisement. So you want to watch uh, quorumreport.com, HoustonChronicle.com for all the latest if there are developments there. We will see you back here on the show next week. Mm -hmm.